Chapter Five of All the Brothers Were Valiant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. All the Brothers Were Valiant by Ben Ames Williams. Chapter Five. They drifted past Pernambuco and touched at Trinidad, and so worked south and somewhat westward for Cape Horn. And in Joel grew, stronger and ever, the resolve to hunt out Mark, and find him, and fetch him home. The blood tie was strong on Joel, stronger than any memory of Mark's derision. And, for the honor of the House of Shore, it were well to prove the matter, if Mark were dead. It is not well for a Shore to abandon his ship in strange seas. He asked Aaron, two weeks after their first talk, whether they had questioned the white men on the purling schooner. "'Oh, aye,' said Aaron, cheerfully. "'I sought em out myself. Three of them, they was. And ill-favored. A slinky small man, and a rat-eyed large man, and a fat man in between. All unshaven and filthy and drunken as owls.' They'd seen naught of Mark Shore, they said. I'm thinking he'd let them see but little of him. He had no tenderness for dirt. Joel told Priss nothing of what he hoped and feared, nor did he question Jim Finch in the matter. Finch was a good man at set tasks, but he was too amiable, and he had no clamp upon his lips. Joel did not wish the word to go abroad among the men. He was glad that most of the crew were new since last voyage, but the officers were unchanged, save that he stood in his brother's shoes. They left Trinidad behind them and shouldered their way southward, the blunt bow of the Nathan Ross battering the seas, and they came to the straits and worked in and made their resting day by day while little Priss, wide-eyed on the deck, watched the gaunt cliffs past whose wave-gnawed feet they stole. And so, at last, the Pacific opened out before them, and they caught the winds and worked toward Easter Island. But their progress was slow. To men unschooled in the patience of the whaling trade, it would have been insufferably slow for they struck fish, and day after day they hung idle on the waves while the tripods boiled. And day after day they loitered on good whaling grounds, while the boats were out thrice and four times between sun's rise and set. If Joel was impatient, he gave no sign. If his desires would have made him hasten on, his duty held him here where rich catches waited for the taking, and while there were fish to be taken, he would not leave them behind. Priscilla hated it. She hated the grime and the smoke and the smell of boiling oil, and she hated this dawdling on the open seas, with never a glimpse of land. More than once she made Joel bear the brunt of her own unrest, and because it is not always good for two people to be too much together, 
and because she had nothing better to do, she began to pick Joel to pieces in her thoughts, and fret at his patience and stolidity. She wished he would grow angry, wished even that he might be angry with her. She wished for anything to break the long days of deadly calm. And she watched Joel more intently than it is well for wife to watch husband, or for husband to watch wife. He did so many things that tried her sore. He had a fashion, when he had finished eating, of setting his hands against the table and pushing himself back from the board with slow and solid satisfaction. She came to the point where she longed to scream when he did this. When they were at table in the main cabin, she watched with such agony of trembling nerves for that movement of his that she forgot to eat and could not relish what she ate. Joel was a man, and his life was moving smoothly. His ship's casks were filling more swiftly than he had any right to hope. His wife was at his side. His skies were clear. He was happy and comfortable and well content. Sometimes, when they were preparing for sleep at night in the cabin at the stern, he would relax on the couch there. But she did not wish for him to put his feet upon the cushions. She said that his shoes were dirty. He offered to take off his shoes, and she shuddered. He had a fashion of stretching and yawning comfortably as he bade her good night, and sometimes a yawn caught him in the middle of a word, and he talked while he yawned. She hated this. She was passing through that hard middle ground, that purgatory between maidenhood and wifehood in the course of which married folk find each other only human, after all and she had not yet come to accept this condition, and to glory in it. She had always thought of Joel as a hero, a protector, a fine, stalwart, able, noble man. Now she forgot that he was commander of this ship and master of the men aboard her, and saw in him only a man who, when work was done, liked to take his ease and who talked through his yawns. She gnawed at this bone of discontent in the hours when Joel was busy with his work. She was furiously resentful of Joel's flesh and bloodness, and Joel, because he was too busy to be introspective, continued calmly, happy and content. The whales led them past Easter Island for a space, and then, abruptly, they were gone. Came day on day when the men at the masthead saw no misty spout against the wide blue of the sea, no glistening black body lying awash among the waves. And the Nathan Ross, with all hands scrubbing white the decks again, bent northward, working toward that maze of tiny islands which dots the wide south seas. Their water was getting stale and running somewhat low, and they needed fresh foodstuffs. Joel planned to touch at the first land that offered. Tubuai, that would be. 
he marked their progress on the chart. On the evening before they would reach the island, when Joel and Priss were preparing for sleep, Priss burst out furiously, like a teapot that boils over. The storm came without warning, and, so far as Joel could see, without provocation. She was sick, she said, of the endless wastes of blue. She wanted to see land, to step on it. If she were not allowed to do so very soon, she would die. Joel at first was minded to tell her they would sight land in the morning. Then, with one of the blundering impulses to which husbands fall victim at such moments, he decided to wait and surprise her. So, instead of telling her, he chuckled as though at some secret jest and tried to quiet her by patting her dark head. She fell silent at his caress, and Joel thought she was appeased. As a matter of fact, she was hating him for having laughed at her, and her calm was ferocious. He discovered this too late. He had just kissed her good night. She turned her cheek to his lips, and he was faintly hurt at this. But he only said cheerfully, "'There, Pris, you'll be all right in the morning.' He yawned in mid-sentence, so that the last two or three words sounded as though he were trying to swallow a large and hot potato while he uttered them. Pris could stand no more of that. Positively. So she slapped his face. He was amazed, and he stood looking at her helplessly while the slapped cheek grew red and red. Pris burst into tears, stamped her foot, called him names she did not mean, and as a climax darted into her own cabin and swung the door and snapped the latch. Joel did not in the least understand and he went to his bunk at last, profoundly troubled. An hour after they anchored the next day at Tubuai, a boat came out from shore and ran alongside, and Mark Shore swung across the rail aboard the Nathan Ross. End of chapter 5 Recording by Roger Moline